Well, brethren, let's go ahead and get started. Good to see all of you this morning, and I trust that uh, all of you had a good week this past week. Our study this morning is again in 1 Peter chapter 5. If I could have you turn with me in your Bibles there, please. And we will be looking together at the final verses here in this epistle, verses 5 through 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 5. Follow along with me, please, as we read. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in the faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He who is in in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Well, before we look together at this passage of Scripture, let's once again bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you once again for your goodness and your grace and your mercy to each one of us. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together as your people and to worship your name and to open your word and to study it. And Lord, your word tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so, Lord, we pray that in this hour, that as we study your word and the hour to come, that you would accomplish your purpose as your word is spoken to us uh, in each one of our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together now. We would ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, we come this morning to our final study in this uh, epistle of Peter, the first epistle of Peter. Last week we considered together Peter's clear and pointed instruction to those who were elders among the churches in Asia Minor to whom he was writing. And having directed his attention in the first four verses to them, he now turns in verse 5 and directs his attention to those whom he referred to earlier as being part of that group whom he identified as the flock of God or those assigned to the care of the elders. He says to them, you younger men, likewise, be subject unto your elders. And as he did earlier when addressing wives and husbands back at the beginning of chapter 3, Peter once again uses the same transition word here, likewise, or literally in the same way, to exhort the people of God to submit themselves to those whom the Lord has placed in a position of authority over them in the church. As shepherds are to submit themselves to the chief shepherd, so the Apostle Peter says that those who are under their authority are to submit to that authority. Now Peter, for some reason here, specifically addresses those who are younger. 
And it's not quite clear in the context why this group in particular is singled out. I read here from the NASV that uses the phrase younger men. However, the word used here in the original simply means young or youthful and nothing more. It does not designate any particular gender along with it. And that's why most translations leave out the word men or any other kind of gender identifier. For example, in the ESV it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. The King James Version says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. The New King James says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to the elder. And the Revised Standard Version says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Again, the question remains, why does Peter especially single out those who are younger here? Well, commentators offer three primary reasons why this might be the case. First of all, it might be because typically older members of the congregation were, and in many cases still are, the ones who are recognized by the church as particularly gifted and suited for this particular office. That may be the first reason why he uses this term. And the reason is rather simple. In the list of qualifications for elders given by Paul to Timothy, one of the qualifications is that the elder candidate must not be a novice or must not be a new convert. Now that qualification would apply regardless how old the person was. Also in this list, there seems to be implied that a reasonable amount of time must go by in the examination process for one who is going to be or considered to be an elder. After all, we know that sanctification is progressive in nature. And while it is true that some progress quicker than others, the fact of the matter remains that a period of time must elapse so that the potential elder might be given the proper examination by the church before he is officially elevated to that position. Certainly, spiritual maturity, as well as practical wisdom obtained in everyday life experiences over time, contribute to an elder being better able to shepherd the flock. The second reason that Peter might single out those who are younger is that those who are younger may tend to be a little more aggressive, a little more strongly opinionated, They may have the tendency more to want to shake things up, if you will, more than the older, more seasoned and mature saints. They may not be as patient with the tried and true methods of church polity. Now certainly that is not always the case, as older saints can be just as stubborn as anyone else, and in some cases they can be more stubborn and more strongly opinionated than anyone else in the church. So that doesn't necessarily stand all the time. The third reason, and the one that I personally prefer, though I can't be absolutely dogmatic about that, is simply that the term elder, which literally means one who is older, is frequently used in the New Testament to describe the leaders of the church. Therefore, the title is used as a term that describes rank or office and not necessarily a description of age. So when Peter uses the term younger here, he may be simply addressing all of those in the church who do not hold that particular rank or office of elder. Now, whatever the reason was for Peter using this term... The bottom line is, regardless of what our age is, all of us are to exercise a humble, submissive, and and obedient disposition toward those who are our elders. 
Over in Hebrews 13 and verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they may do it with joy and not groaning, for this would be unhelpful for you. And in the same way, Peter says here to these believers, be subject to your elders. The phrase be subject literally means to arrange in an orderly manner, under. And the tense here is a command that conveys a sense of urgency. And in in other words, what Peter is saying here is fall into line under your God-appointed leadership and do it now. Don't procrastinate. And as we saw back in chapter 3 and dealing with the same issue of leadership and submission in the home, we pointed out then, as we again do now, that the whole matter of, of submission focuses on position. It does not focus on personality. And we need to be reminded that those in positions of authority over us are not acting on their own but rather they are instruments in the hand of God for our own well-being. If you and I continually judge leadership, and in this case church leadership, as being made up of a group of men who are merely there to serve their own interests and acting on their own will, what eventually is going to happen is that we are going to become disillusioned and bitter against them. But if we regard them as men who are humbly committed to willingly and eagerly nurturing, feeding, and overseeing the flock of God, not doing it for any personal gain, but rather doing it out of love for their Savior and out of love for the people of God and over whom they have been charged, if we view them through that lens then the Lord will most certainly use their ministry under the hand of the Spirit of God for our own spiritual good. If we don't, then as Hebrews 13, 17 says, we will only wind up not only making the elder's life miserable, but such an attitude will be unhelpful to our own spiritual well-being and growth as well. And so Peter begins with this command, you younger men, likewise, be subject unto your elders. Well, immediately following this statement, Peter once again focuses his attention. He shifts it to all of those to whom he is writing. And we know this because the next words here in this text are, and all of you. And from this point forward through the end of verse 11, Peter is going to summarize the truths that he has already addressed throughout the course of this epistle. He's going to remind them how they as believers are to conduct themselves, especially in light of the hostilities that they currently face and are going to continue to face from the godless world that is around them. Toward the end of our study this morning, we will see in verse 12 that Peter will write, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. But before he says that, he makes it a point to remind them how it is that they, by the grace of God, are going to be enabled to stand firm in this grace. And if you're at all a fan of Warren Wiersbe's B-series, I'm sure that uh, this will be helpful to you as we go over the outline. In exhorting the people of God to stand firm in the true grace of God, Peter reminds these believers here to be humble, be trusting, be vigilant, be faithful, be encouraged, and finally, be hopeful. And as we consider together these matters this morning, may the Lord instruct our hearts in being diligent ourselves in these very important matters. So first of all, let us note here from our text 
But the Apostle Peter exhorts these people to be humble. He continues in verse 5 by saying, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He says here, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The word that he writes here, or the words that he writes here, clothe yourselves, means to tie something on oneself with a knot or with a bow. And it was a term that was often used to describe a servant or a slave tying or fastening on an apron over his clothes, which they usually did in order to keep their undergarments clean while they were working. In other words, this phrase was a badge of servitude. No doubt Peter clearly remembered the actions of our Lord Jesus in the upper room when after supper was done that John records for us that he laid aside his garments and he took a towel and he girded himself. In other words, he wrapped it around himself or he fastened it to his body in some fashion. You might remember that it was Peter on that very occasion who so strongly opposed the actions of Christ in that moment as Jesus took upon himself the role of the lowliest servant in order to serve his disciples. But now the Apostle Peter understands things differently. And as Christ so humbled himself to serve others, Peter exhorts these believers to follow the example of their Savior and gird yourself with humility as your garment of service. He says we are to clothe ourselves with humility. You and I, brethren, are to be humble. The word humility here means lowliness of mind or self-abasement. And it describes the proper attitude of one who willingly serves, even in the lowliest tasks. When Jesus had finished washing the disciples' feet, he applied what he just did to them by saying to them in John 13, 14 through 17, If I, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example so that you also would do just as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And Peter continues here by giving his readers a great motivation for humility He says, because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We know that pride is the opposite of humility. Pride thinks and esteems oneself without regard for the good and well-being of anyone else. The Word of God repeatedly makes it clear that pride is something that God absolutely hates. He is opposed to the proud. The word opposed here literally means to set up an army in array against or to arrange in a battle order to get ready for battle. The Lord says in Proverbs 8.13, Pride, arrogance, the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. And without question, the fact that God hates pride and stands opposed to it is a great motivation for the people of God to adopt within themselves an attitude of humility. Pride sets us against God and vice versa. But on the other hand, God blesses, and he says here, he gives grace to the humble. Spurgeon, in commenting on these words, said, Humble hearts seek grace, and therefore they receive grace. Humble hearts yield to the sweet influences of grace, and so grace is bestowed on them more and more largely. 
Humble hearts lie in the valleys where streams of grace are flowing, and hence they drink of them. Humble hearts are grateful for grace and give the Lord the glory of it, and hence it is consistent with his honor to give it to them. Then he says, Be little in thine own esteem that the Lord may make much of thee. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. In the way to true honor is to be humble. And so having exhorted these believers in the first place to be humble, Peter continues secondly to exhort these believers to be trusting. He exhorts them to be trusting. Having reminded them that God gives grace to the humble, Peter says, therefore... Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. As believers endure humbly, they find their strength in the midst of trial and difficulty through a confident trust in the perfect plan and purpose of God. This was David's confidence, wasn't it? When he wrote in Psalm 55 and verse 22, Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And with this in mind, Peter now exhorts these believers that because of the fact that God gives grace to the humble, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in the proper time. The phrase hand of God was used frequently in the Old Testament to picture God's active presence and power working in the experience of men to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And Peter here uses this exact same terminology to remind his readers that our destiny is in the hands of an almighty and sovereign God. Whether that be for testing, for deliverance, or for chastening, God is always, under every circumstance of life, accomplishing his eternal purposes on behalf of those who belong to him. And since this is the case, brethren, why should you and I grumble and chafe at our circumstances? Hasn't God said in his word that all things will work together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose? So Peter says here, trust him. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand so that he may exalt you in the proper time. Peter gives here the wonderful end result of humbling oneself before God. He says he will lift us up in his wisely appointed time. Our God controls everything, Peter says, including time. He is never late He is never early. He is always on time. And our exaltation is certain and it will take place at the very time that God himself has appointed it. It will take place, Peter says, at the proper time. Well, having the confidence that this is true, Peter says that we can cast or we can throw all of our discouragement all of our pain, all of our suffering, all of our anxiety upon the Lord because of the fact that we trust in Him. We know that He is a faithful, sovereign, loving, and wise Heavenly Father. So Peter exhorts these believers then, first of all, to be humble. Secondly, he exhorts them here to be trusting And thirdly now, he exhorts them here to be diligent, or to be vigilant, rather. Be vigilant. He continues in verse 8 by saying these words, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking whom he may devour. Just in case they needed to be reminded, Peter says that their relentless spiritual opposition is coming from none other than Satan himself. Satan is the believer's chief adversary. Three times during the course of Christ's earthly ministry, he referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Satan is not only the archenemy of God, but also of all of those who belong to him. Personally, and through the demonic host, like a roaring lion, Satan continually prowls about looking for prey to devour. The word devour here means to gulp or to drink down, emphasizing that his ultimate goal is not merely to wound us, but his ultimate goal is to destroy us. And he has at his disposal many different strategies in order to accomplish this. And because this is the case, Peter exhorts these believers to never let their guard down. Rather, he says that they are always to be watchful. They are always to be vigilant. And to be vigilant means that we are to be always on the alert. Our thinking must be clear. We must be sober-minded. For those of us who drive vehicles uh, all the time or every day, we know that to operate a vehicle on the highway, we are required to be vigilant, aren't we? You never know what the other driver approaching the intersection might do. You never know that there might be a child that might run out between a couple of parked cars on the roadway. You never know at what point a deer might jump out on the road in front of you. And if we are not paying attention, or if our mind is impaired by drugs or by alcohol, we are not driving soberly. And as a result, it is extremely extremely difficult to be diligent regarding these things that pose a potential threat, not only to our own safety, but also to the safety of others. And so in similar manner, spiritually speaking, in order to be vigilant, we must never allow ourselves to be intoxicated, if you will. Intoxicated by sin. Intoxicated by the allurements of this world. Intoxicated even by the cares of this world, legitimate as those cares might be. Our minds and hearts are to be disciplined and self-controlled in order that we might remain vigilant. And so Peter says we are to be humble, we are to be trusting, we are to be vigilant, and fourthly he says that we are to be faithful. We are to be faithful. Assuming that we are vigilant, what are we to do when Satan attacks with the intent of destroying us. Well, Peter continues by instructing these believers, so resist him firm in the faith. Our minds must be resolute as what we are going to do when that happens. He uses here two terms. The first term is to resist, and that means literally to take a stand against. The second term is the word firm, and that word simply means solid. And so in other words, Peter is exhorting them here to hold your ground, never give in, do not back down regardless of the threat that comes against you, remain steadfast in your convictions, stay faithful to those eternal truths that you, by the grace of God, have come to believe in. God has provided for us all of the necessary means and strength in order for us to be able to accomplish this. Over in Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul lays this out for us very clearly. He says, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the day of evil. And having done everything to stand firm, 
Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all that, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Be faithful. We are in a warfare, brethren, and the Lord has given you and I all that we need in order to resist, all that we need in order to stand firm, to remain faithful, and by his grace, ultimately, be victorious over Satan. With this in mind, as we resist the devil, standing firm in our faith, Peter then says, fifthly, be encouraged. Be encouraged. As the battle rages, remember that you are not alone in the fight. Many saints over the centuries who now rest from the battle have gone through the exact same things that you have gone through. And in addition to that, there are many presently who are resisting and standing firm. And there are many yet to come in the future who are going to have to do the same thing. So he says, be encouraged, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. One of my favorite accounts in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is that scene in the interpreter's house where the interpreter leads Christian to what Bunyan calls a pleasant place where was built a stately palace, beautiful to behold. And as Christian is there looking at this stately palace, one of the things that he notices is up on the wall there are people walking. And he says those people who are up there are clothed in gold. And as they are walking closer to the door of this particular palace, uh, Bunyan tells us that there were a few things that they noticed as they approached it. First of all, they noticed that there were several armed guards that were standing just outside the door, and their purpose was to keep anybody from entering in through the door into the palace. The second thing that he noticed was just outside of those soldiers, there was a table, and there was a man sitting there, and he had a book laying there on the table, and he had a pen in his hand. And then over off to the side, he noticed that there was another group of men standing, a group of men who were desirous to go in through the door into the palace, but because of the fact that they were afraid of what might happen to them because of the guards standing outside the palace, they stayed where they were at. They did not proceed. So that's the setting of that scene. And then Bunyan continues by saying that as they were all standing there, there was a man that stepped up to the table and he said to the man who was sitting at the table, set my name down there, sir. And he said that when the man's name was entered into the book, Bunyan says that he put a helmet on his head and he drew his sword and he rushed toward the door, engaging with the armed guards who tried intently to keep him out. And while this was all going on, those who were dressed in gold, who were standing up on the roof of the the palace, were at that time looking on what was taking place, and they were yelling down to the man, encouraging him by saying to him, Come in, come in, eternal glory you shall win. And Bunyan says that after receiving and giving many wounds to those who attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward through the door into the palace. And no doubt as Bunyan was writing these words, he was thinking of those words over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, where the writer, after recounting the faith of the many saints that had come before them, He says to them this, 
Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So in like manner, Peter says, be encouraged, believer. You are not alone in this fight. And so having exhorted them thus far to be humble, to be trusting, to be vigilant, to be faithful, and to be encouraged, Peter finally says to these believers, be hopeful. Be hopeful. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Hope provides believers with the confidence that after all of the trials and difficulties of this present life, you and I have eternal glory to look forward to. But that will only come, Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while. The glory of the believer is that one day they will be made perfectly into the image of their Savior. And that is presently, even in the midst of trial and persecution, being accomplished and worked out by the God of all grace. Even now, God is perfecting, confirming, strengthening, and establishing those of us who are his until we finally realize eternal glory. The word perfect here means to bring to wholeness. Confirm means to set fast. Strengthen means to make sturdy. And establish means to lay as a foundation. And brethren, God is presently working in us, even through difficulties, to conform us more and more into the image of his Son. And thus we have the hope, because with Paul we are confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so with this in mind, what ought our response to be? Well, certainly our response ought to be one of worship. And as the Apostle contemplates all of these things that he has just spoken and that he has encouraged the people of God about relating to divine grace, God's sanctifying work, and the ultimate glory that awaits those who are called into that grace, it is like Peter cannot contain himself as he considers all of these things and he ends by bursting out in doxology. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, as was the typical custom of the Apostle Paul and John, Peter, in the same manner, now closes this letter by passing along a few personal greetings and parting instructions to those to whom he is writing. He begins by making mention of one who he refers to as our faithful brother and the one to whom Peter had dictated the words of this epistle. He says, Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I guard him, I have written to you briefly. Now, Sylvanus is a name that appears four times in the New Testament. He's mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.19, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, and here in Peter first, uh, 1 Peter 5 and verse 12 is the fourth time that this man's name appears. Sylvanus is Latin for the Greek name Silas. And though we don't have the time this morning to examine the matter, Suffice it to say that there is much biblical evidence to show that the two names refer to the same person mentioned frequently over in the book of Acts. And most biblical scholars agree that this is indeed the case. Peter makes it very clear here that this letter was written by himself 
to these believers through this man named Silvanus. He says, through Silvanus, I have written to you briefly. And he refers to him here as our faithful brother. It's obvious from this statement that Silvanus was well known in the churches of that day, especially here in Asia Minor, for his fidelity. The word faithful indicates that Silvanus was trustworthy. He was dependable. He was reliable. He was loyal. He manifested steadfast allegiance to Christ and a firm adherence to the word of God. And this was not only the sentiment of others, but Peter here makes it very clear that it was his sentiment as well. For he adds, for so I regard him. This is my opinion. This is my firm conviction as well. Silvanus is a faithful brother and servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has repeatedly, he has proven this fact repeatedly to be true over and over again. But Peter then continues by summarizing to these believers not what he has written, but rather here the purpose for having written these words. Why was it that Peter wrote these words to these particular people? Well, he says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. His first purpose in writing, he says, was to exhort, parakleo, para meaning side of, and kaleo meaning to call. The word conveys the basic idea of calling one alongside to give help, to give strength, or to give aid. In classic Greek, the word parakleo is often used of exhorting troops who are about to go into battle. It implies an earnest and persuasive address that is aimed at encouraging the readers to to courageously face their trials. But Peter's second purpose here, he says, is to testify. The word used here means to attest further or to affirm something to be genuine or true. And what is it that he is exhorting and testifying of? Well, he says that this is the true grace of God. In other words, what Peter is saying is that his purpose in writing is to testify in the strongest terms that the gospel, the doctrine of salvation, which had been clearly preached to them and had by faith been embraced by them, was indeed the true account of the grace of God revealed in the scriptures and fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter began this epistle by reminding these believers of this true grace of God. It has been the theme all the way throughout the book until the very end where he mentions it here again. And so he concludes this thought after reminding them of this true grace of God which he has once again put in front of them. He says to them, stand firm in it. The literal meaning of this command is into which, having entered, stand fast. In other words, Peter declares that this epistle testifies to the readers that that grace in which they already stood is the true grace from which, therefore, they should never depart. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ is the true grace of God. It's the only thing which will give stability to our feet in the midst of the trials and difficulties of life. And how truly blessed is the man or woman whose faith is resolutely fixed upon this sure foundation. Peter then continues in verse 13 by extending greetings from two different sources directed at those believers to whom he is writing. He says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, 
and so does my son Mark. Now the first greeting here comes from a source identified by the phrase, she who is at Babylon, chosen together with you, sends greetings. The literal translation of this verse in English, English is somewhat ambiguous. Uh, the literal translation reads this, reads this way, the at Babylon elected together with greets you and Marcus my son. Now that may be great Greek, but it's not very great English. So translators have tried to figure out what exactly to put in there to make us maybe understand a little bit better what it was that, that Peter was saying here. Now, as I was studying this, I have to admit, there is a great deal of debate on this point as to who exactly he is referring to and where this greeting is coming from. And we certainly don't have the time here this morning to look at all of the possibilities that have been considered. But suffice it to say that whoever and wherever it came from, this person or these people whom Peter is speaking of were followers of Christ. He says they were chosen in Christ. They loved the Lord Jesus, and they were fellow believers with those to whom Peter is addressing here in Asia Minor. And they wanted to convey to these brothers and sisters in Christ, through the apostle, their deep and their heartfelt greeting. Included in this salutation is a second greeting that is conveyed by one whom Peter identifies as his son, Mark. And it is believed that this is John Mark, who is mentioned in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, where we read that when Peter was released by the angel from prison, that he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. As Timothy was a spiritual son to the Apostle Paul, so Mark was a spiritual son to the Apostle Peter. And Luke records for us that Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Antioch and Cyprus, but later we are told that he deserted them at Perga and went to Jerusalem. And as a result of his desertion, Paul refused to take Mark along on his second missionary journey, and instead Mark went and traveled with Barnabas. In time, Scripture tells us that Paul had a change of heart regarding Mark, and in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, he requested that he would be brought to Paul, because as Paul says, he is useful to me for service. It was this same Mark whom the Holy Spirit inspired to write the gospel that bears his name. And Peter then in the final verse tells these believers to greet one another with a kiss of love. At this time a kiss was a sign of brotherly affection and it was used in large part by the Jews. Today in our society and even in the church we commonly shake hands or we might uh, once ever in a while even give each other a hug as a form of greeting or farewell. Well, in the first century, such expressions of affection were demonstrated with a kiss. And it's abundantly evident from Scripture that this same token of affection, referred to by Paul at the conclusion of four of his letters, was also used in the early church. He frequently exhorted those to whom he was writing to greet one another with a holy kiss. Peter uses here slightly different terminology by referring to the same means of affection, and that is a kiss of love. But then Peter concludes this letter with this, these words. He says, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Peter ends his epistle with a word that was not only used as a common Jewish salutation, but one in which he had heard on many occasions expressed coming from the lips of our Savior. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid." 
That blessed gift of peace which Jesus so freely offered is granted to all of those who are in Christ Jesus, the one who is our peace. And genuine peace can only be found, brethren, in him. And genuine peace flows from him. Even in the midst of great trial and persecution, the believer is able by God's grace to endure because we possess in our hearts the peace of God which passes all understanding. The world knows nothing of this peace. The world is like the raging sea driven with the wind and tossed. May those of us who know the Lord this morning rest in the fact that God has provided in Christ every resource and every blessing that we need and we have the confidence that he who has begun a good work in us will indeed perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So why then should we as believers be upset? Why should we be fearful? Why should we be discouraged? If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for these encouragements given by Peter to these believers long ago. And Lord, these same truths that he spoke to them, we know apply to us today. And so, Father, we pray that we as your people would take heed to the things that we have just heard. And most importantly, we pray that we might apply them to our lives. Lord, we pray that we might indeed, as the people of God, be humble. We pray pray that we might be trusting. We pray that we might be vigilant. We pray that we might be faithful. We pray that we might be encouraged. And Lord, we pray that we might be hopeful. We thank you for all that you have accomplished for us in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that we might go from this place rejoicing in who you are and all that you have accomplished for us. We would ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. heard in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you just as in all 